This is Colonia Cast, episode 37. Today we're joined by Gabriel Georgiewicz Cohn, uh, who is currently a PhD student at the University of Zurich's uh, Museum of Paleontology. Uh, we're really excited to talk to Gabriel today. Uh, he's done a lot of really interesting work, and uh, we're going to focus a lot on one of his recent papers on sort of communication and evolution of communication in turtles. Uh, some really interesting, groundbreaking stuff. So uh, thanks for coming on, uh, Gabriel, and we're excited to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Exciting to be here. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I guess we can. We like to start it off with uh, one question that's kind of all the same, but uh, it, it's interesting to hear everyone's different response. But what what first got you interested in turtles and tortoises, um, and and where how'd you get into that path? Oh, how how not to get into that path, right? Like they're so cool. Right. right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I I guess I've been always obsessed about animals since I was a very small child, and um, I was always very interested, especially in fish and um, reptiles, amphibians. Um, as a kid and as a teenager, I had many pets at my place and I learned a bunch about, about these animals, um, you know, reading online and, and trying to care for them and, and breed them. Um, and I decided to study biology in my bachelor's, um, um, during the bachelor's, I did some volunteer work. I, I did some um, short-term research on this, uh, on these groups, especially um, reptiles and amphibians. But most, most of my work until I started my PhD um, was focused on amphibians. I think um, also because they're very interesting, but they are, they're more common. Uh, it's easy to find them and it's not the case with every um, group of reptile. Mm, right. And um, but I had pet turtles, and I was interested in in giving them very good care. So I was always reading uh, as much as I could, and I started realizing that there were so many knowledge gaps and some things that I I could actually answer by just looking at my own pets. And and I started going more and more into that direction and. And I just think it's an amazing group to um, to work with. That's uh, it, it's interesting that sort of from the the you had him early on, and that 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 love for him was developed kind of early. I'm I'm, I'm curious too because you, you said earlier in, uh, that you were you're from Brazil originally and and went to undergrad there and. Uh, masters, I believe. Um, but what brought you to the University of Zurich? That's kind of a big jump, right? Yeah. Um, well, I guess um, maybe at least in the American perspective, this might be a bit strange because uh, such a big country with many universities. And of course, Brazil is also a, a large country with many universities, but sometimes uh, funding is an issue. And um, I think once you get the, the chance to apply to positions elsewhere where uh, you, can, you can get access to um, different resources and you, you get in touch with uh, really great researchers, which of course we also have them in, in Brazil, that's, that's an alternative. Uh, so it's not rare for, for people in, in many countries, not only Brazil, to, to apply for 
positions in elsewhere. Um, and uh, I just saw the opportunity. I, I applied for, for this scholarship that is, um, was granted by the Swiss government. And yeah, here I am. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's sort of different. Like in the United States, at least, it's not. I mean, people do, obviously, but it's not as common to, uh, to leave the country to go. But it, that makes a lot of sense that there's sort of different dynamic. Well, I, yeah, I guess we I, start. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, just just to um, close the topic, I, uh, I have several uh, colleagues here and most of them are not Swiss. So the international community is huge, uh, Switzerland, especially um, uh, international. Uh, but this is the case in every post-graduation in, in Europe, at least. Um, and um, I don't know many Americans here. Um, I think not, not as many come as people from other regions. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in the future, there's certainly great resources all over the place. And it's, it seems like uh, that, that might be something where for for upcoming students looking for opportunity, maybe consider stuff that's beyond sort of the confines of your national uh, in the United yeah. States in particular. Um, but yeah, I think maybe now we can sort of transition into the, the, the major topic for today, which is the sort of evolution of, of communication and sound production among, and, and this study you did was among all uh, Koanits, I think I'm, the pronunciation may be messed up there, but uh, a lot of tetrapods essentially um, and, and ancestors. Uh, but maybe you could just sort of um, give us kind of a rundown of, of why you chose to, like what got you interested in that question? It's such an interesting thing, but where did that idea to study this first come from? Um, well, I... Well, I, I started the research focus on, on turtles. The, the, the idea of working with coanates generally came afterwards once I discovered that acoustic communication was widespread among turtles. So first of all, I, I went to different um, institutions uh, like zoos and private collectors and yeah, uh, other institutions in different countries. And I recorded as many turtle species as I could. Um, and I like the idea was to have a, a like a good uh, phylogenetic overview of, of the species. And um, in total, we recorded 50 different species from all families. And we discovered that they all make sounds. They all, they all produce several sounds, actually. Um, and from there, uh, we started making new questions. So, like, because we discovered this, this opened to, to a, a, a new path of, of the research. So, basically, um, we knew already before we, we started this research that there were some turtles that were able to communicate with sounds. So, I'm... Um, um, actually, this, this paper we published is co-authored by Camila Ferrara, who's a, a Brazilian researcher in, in the Amazon. And she, she was the one publishing most of the papers showing that several different turtle species produce sounds. But the knowledge we had about this was um, sparse. And like we just knew from five, something between five and 10 species that, that were able to communicate with sounds. And before 
this was considered to be something rare and something that appeared uh, in those species, but was not widespread among turtles. And once we discovered that it, it's actually not the case, it, that every turtle, like I, all the species we recorded produce sounds. We never found one that didn't. Uh, we started questioning that these other lineages of animals, they are commonly also considered to be mute. So we just thought maybe we should go there and, and record them as well and check. And that's why we included some other animals in the paper like the tuatara, uh, the Sicilian and the lungfish. And um, they also all produce sounds. Um, and we, we call, like we focus the paper on coanates because this is tetrapods plus lungfish, right? And we, we recorded the lungfish because uh, this is the sister taxa to tetrapods. And uh, they also have lungs. They can also breathe air. So our, our hypothesis is that the, the mechanisms of sound production are like they, they diverged during the evolutionary history of, of the lineages, but um, they come from the same evolutionary origin. And then we did not include like uh, ray finite fishes because they, we know that they produce sounds in many different ways. So maybe this is not the same in an evolutionary perspective. And that's why it's focused on coanates and not, for example, vertebrates. Although they do produce sounds as well. Right. That there's there's a lot to unpack there, and it's it's a real great <laughs> overview to it. But um, so I, I guess the first thing is you'd mentioned. So your conclusion is that the at sort of the coanate basal ancestor and uh, the common ancestor of that whole group that sound production was likely something that existed and then it radiated out and it changed and diversified, but it was always sort of something that existed. But be prior to this analysis. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, no one had shown that before. And typically the, the, uh, the, the answer to the question was the opposite, that it was something that was convergent and it evolved multiple times. Uh, like, was, is that right? Or, and what were some of the lines of reasoning behind that conclusion as opposed to what you found? Yeah, actually, there was only one paper that was published on, like, trying to answer exactly that question. Um, and uh, it was published in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, um, by, by a group in, in the US. And um, basically they, like we used the same analysis they did. Uh, we actually used their uh, database even uh, and their phylogenetic tree. Um, but the difference between their work and ours is that we, we had new evidence about these lineages that were not known to make sound. So, so what happened in their uh, research, in their paper, is that they, um, they were not on purpose. It's not to, to put their work down. So this is definitely not the fact. Uh, the, the case, I, I think it was great research. It's just that they didn't have this information. So they were considering these animals to be non-vocal based on, on lack of information, not evidence of absence, mm -hmm. if, you, if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, because of that, the reconstruction that they had uh, was, was very different from ours. They basically concluded that 
the what this sounds to me by mammals uh, come from a different evolutionary origin than sounds made by birds and sounds made by frogs, for example. But if you include turtles in this um, context, this uh, this changes completely. Right. It was sort of just an, an absence of data, and and that negative was, was sort of coded in a way that it it produced a tree where you had different results. That that, that makes sense. Um, but that that sort of raises another question. I I was sort of curious about this. I think you address it in the paper a bit, but for someone that's reading it, uh, they may question like, is there a because you're looking really at sound production. How do you know if that's communication? Like, how, how are you determining that? That's a great question. And uh, it's uh, for sure something that we need to investigate further. Um, so, for example, there is a group here at the University of Zurich that works on acoustic communication of meerkats. And the, the principal investigator of this group started this research over 30 years ago. And she has been studying these animals um, since then with a, with a very large group of uh, PhD students and, and postdocs and so on. They even have a colony of meerkats here in Zurich. And uh, they, they still find new sounds. They still find new meanings to the sounds that they make. So like the, they, have been, they have so much work on this and there's still things to discover. And what I did in my research was to, to record over 50 different species that have never been recorded and show that they have a bunch of different sounds. But I wasn't able to explain the, the meaning of each sound that each species uh, produce. And this, this definitely needs to be investigated further. But we, we had an approach to try to infer um, the intentionality or the meaning uh, associated to those sounds that, that they produce. So basically what we did was to uh, record first uh, only females, then only males, then couples together, then only juveniles, then juveniles with females and so on and on. And, and try to see if there was any type of correlation between the sounds that they were making and the, the behavior they were displaying. So we had underwater, underwater cameras uh, together with the hydrophone and so on. And the, the, some of the sounds that they produced were clearly associated to, for example, courtship behavior. So we can tell only males produce that sound. Like we never found this sound when we were recording only females or only juveniles and, and so on. Um, also, for example, there are some sounds that increase in, in number and frequency um, when you put animals together. So if you record them in isolation, they, they sometimes produce sounds, but just every once in a while together, they, they just don't stop because this has a, like a social meaning. Uh, so those were several different kinds of indications that, that those sounds had uh, uh, a reason they, they had they have communicative um, meaning it's not just a background or or like a byproduct of of other behaviors um right. and i think uh, also one other thing that i i think is quite relevant and this is not something we specify in the paper because also space is uh limited and and so on 
um, is that there are some species re recorded that produce over 30 different types of sounds, which is insane. Like we don't know any species of turtle or like there are no descriptions of turtles with acoustic repertoires uh, that big. And actually, if you, if you read uh, about birds and, and mammals, many species don't produce that many sounds. So it's, it's yeah, actually not very... That's really yeah. impressive because, um, you know, one of the insects that is uh, so well known for communicating with stridulation is the best beetle, right? And those only produce 17 sounds. 30 mm -hmm. is a lot. Yeah, no, it's a lot. And uh, I think it's just not parsimonious to think that if they were producing 30 different types of sounds in different contexts, that this is just, you know, right. randomly produced as um, any other behavior. It's just doesn't make sense. Which uh, which species were you finding that? Like, well, I yeah, talking about the turtles in particular is a whole sort of that that's real interesting and you, you had a lot of experience where, where the, i guess before we get into talking individual turtles and how they differed maybe it'd be good to just like where were these turtles that you were measuring uh so uh all this research or most of this research was made in captivity because um we we had no um reference of the kinds of sounds we were looking for so if you go to the wild and you just randomly record them there, you're probably going to get sounds from other species that you also don't know are, are producing sounds. Um, so we had to isolate these animals to, to do this research. And, and to do that, we went to several different institutions in five different countries, if I'm not mistaken. So I've been to places in, in Switzerland, in Austria, Germany, uh, England, and Brazil. But also some of the species were recorded by some of my co-authors. So there's there are species from Belize, um, Australia. Yeah, I don't remember if there are other countries now. <laughs> but it, it's a large group. I mean, this was a collective effort for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a huge effort. But m many animals are um are in zoos here so i i could go sometimes to to a place and stay just for i don't know uh two weeks and record a bunch of them in that in that time uh frame but yeah it's definitely a collective uh work right that that's uh really interesting it, yeah a lot of effort went into this for sure um when it comes to the it, like using the hydrophone what what was that like and different like taking that around i mean was it straightforward or were there kind of issues with trying to do that well there are always issues right um <laughs> so, so many things you don't expect um and uh there's uh, there's always a case where the hydrophone breaks and then you have to find what broke and fix it and sometimes you don't have the the type of uh, equipment that you need to fix it um the cameras break and then the cameras fall and then you cannot see anything in the camera because the water is so dirty um yeah. there is a lot of background noise because it's like i don't know you get to a place and you, you don't know what you're gonna get you just email people you say i know you have this collection of turtles i need to record this and this and that species and you get there and then suddenly you have the enclosures are in the middle of the bird enclosure so there are many parrots 
and other birds making a lot of sounds and it's like it's hell and um and then you have to negotiate can can we move these turtles to another room can we do this can we do that and then rules are different in different places um you, you have to be lucky to get people there willing to help so yeah and the hydrophone is actually not too big so it's a, it's quite easy to um to bring it anywhere. Uh, it's like a tiny, I, I, I should have uh, brought it here so I could show it to you. I don't, I don't have it with me. But it's, a, it's like a small microphone that goes underwater. It has very long cable. So, so you have some flexibility um, with the distance you, you put your recorder from, from the pool, for example. Um, the recorder I used is, um, it's a professional music uh, recorded, but you can buy it at any shop. So yeah, it's, it's actually um, the equipment itself and, and the way of um, collecting data is quite simple. It's not like rocket science or anything. It's just that it's new and no one, no one did it. <laughs> it it's, it's sort of weird to think. I mean, it, it was such an interesting question and kind of an open question, but in, in the fact, but it, I mean, there's so, we, we know so little, I think collectively that it, it, it sort of makes sense, but at the same time, it's like, it's crazy 2022. That's like the first time that this has been, that it's been done. I mean, it, it just goes to show how much we have to learn. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So th that's, uh, yeah, when it comes to sort of the the uh, the individual turtles that you were monitoring, I mean, this was something um, that that's real interesting. And, and for folks of our audience that are more turtle uh, savvy, and that's kind of the primary interest, I'm I'm sure going to want to hear about the differences among species. Um, so, like, what were some of the di I mean, how variable are are we talking between the 50 turtles you measured and, and what were some of the unique, most unique ones where maybe you saw something you didn't expect to see? Or... Yeah, well, it, it can actually vary a lot within the species. I was telling you that there are some that produce like over 30 different types of sounds. So you, you get a, a bunch of different things only, only with that species. Um, but there are... There are some sounds that are quite similar in, in different lineages. They are not really uh, that closely related. So for example, uh, we have sounds, and um, maybe I can send you the, the link later, uh, but it's also on, on the paper. There's a, a presentation where you can actually listen to every single sound from every species we recorded. Um, so people can check it later. But um, there's, uh, for example, sounds produced by the Hikati, the um, Dermatemis from Belize, uh, those uh, were hatchlings. And uh, if you compare the sounds produced by hatchlings of all the sea turtle species, they are actually quite similar. And um, there are some sounds like clicks, for example, they're quite widespread. Many species produce them. Um, and some species produce more uh, complex sounds that are like, it's, it's a bit hard to describe, but it's like a, like a high-pitched uh, squeak. And you, you, cannot, you can find those in, in different lineages as well. So I find it interesting to think that there are some sounds that are very different, some that are very similar. And 
the number of different sounds actually vary a lot. Um, and one thing that I've been thinking about for very long since I started this actually, is that it's actually very hard for us to compare the sounds produced or the repertoires produced by different species. Because, um, and maybe I'm, I'm going to a too specific topic here. You can stop me at any time, but. No, no, we, um, we like this. This is, this is what it's all about, yeah. Um, but one, one issue here, and I have no clue how to solve this issue at the moment, is how to propose a, a homology hypothesis about those, those sounds. So um, to, one, to the ones that don't know, um, homology um, is referring to the same evolutionary origin, right? So like when we compare things, um, we have to be sure that we are comparing apples to apples and not apples to bananas, right? Um, and when they are producing those many sounds, it's a bit complicated to say, okay, this sound is a courtship sound. That sound is used for, I don't know, whatever else. Even if you know that, you cannot really say, okay, these are the same things. These, these sounds have the same evolutionary origin. So we can compare those among different species. This is not necessarily true because function can also change during the evolutionary process, right? So the same sound produced by two different species during courtship are maybe not comparable. And then any inference that you make is based on a hypothesis that is highly limited because you have like these huge differences of, of um, number of sounds and, and types of sounds and behaviors associated to those sounds, which makes it impossible to, to make like deep, deeper comparisons. I don't know if I make myself clear or I just created a new problem. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, right, right. Among species, uh, how, are, how are all the sounds you're hearing? How can you place them into context? And, and where are the similarities and differences, right? That's sort of what you're saying. Yeah, that, that too, for sure. But also, it's, it's just hard. Like, I cannot decide, okay, those things are comparable. I, I don't know what is comparable. Mm -hmm. You know, right. Yeah, it's... Uh, when it when it's species specific, that that's another thing that, that I'm curious about, right? If you've got species specific sounds, even if the sounds are similar, they could serve very different functions. And exactly, that's that's exactly my point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I I haven't done any. Um, I mean, I, I haven't focused too much on this topic, and I I haven't tried to do any fancy analysis on this, but um, I. I don't see any pattern um, that shows that some sounds are associated to, to specific lineages. So I don't think, for example, we could use uh, sounds, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but I, based on what I have seen so far, it seems to me that we probably won't be able to use sounds as, um, as a taxonomic character for turtles, as, as it's done for many birds and frogs, for example. I don't know. And uh, I would like to investigate further, and I hope some people do the same. 
Yeah, that was something I, I was particularly curious with. Like, it's so complex. Complex. You think for cryptic species, like uh, mm -hmm. the, the one, like alligator snapping turtles, is sort of an example. I mean, they're not. So, it's, I, I think you could consider them cryptic species. They're so they're but similar in a lot of ways, and and that was one where you showed. It seemed like they were producing pretty high intensity sound. I mean, was that for the alligator snapping turtles? What was the situation with that? Um, I'm going to twist your question a little bit and um, I'm actually going to talk more about the common snapping turtle uh, because okay. <laughs> I was very, very much impressed by that species. With the, with the alligator snapping turtle, I, I couldn't get a lot of information. We recorded in captivity for very short uh, periods of time, so I don't have much, much to say. But with the common snapping turtle, we recorded several animals in different contexts and we actually got many more sounds than those we included in this paper. And I am, um, I told you uh, before that I, I finished my thesis now and I'm about to defend my PhD and uh, I have other chapters on turtle acoustics. And in one of those, we described the, like a, we have a big, a bit uh, broader description of the acoustic repertoire of the common snapping turtle. And this animal is insane, insane. And I, I find it very interesting because, you know, they have this fame of being so aggressive and like they don't want to interact too much. They fight, uh, but they, they actually have a lot to say, a lot of different things to say. <laughs> so yeah, quite, quite cool. That's interesting. I, I'm in uh, – I, when I'm not at school in Athens, Georgia, I'm in Atlanta. And, uh, well, I've historically been in California, but I recently moved there. Uh, but So I've spent a lot of time looking for them in the, in the, the wilderness. Ken's, uh, Ken's also in the area, so we go out and look for them a lot. They're, they're really interesting turtles because you can find a lot of them in an area, but they're also in habitat that you wouldn't see, think is really conducive to communicating. Like – when you kind of look at the results in context of captivity in the wild, uh, how effective do you think communication would be in a wild setting? Like how well do this sound? Oh yeah. Crap? That's it. Uh, yeah, we definitely need to look further into that because, um, well, first of all, when the animal is in captivity, there is a limited um, set of situations to which it's, it, it's exposed, right? So like um, there, there are several things that it's going to experience in the wild that it's definitely not gonna experience in, in captivity. So uh, I, I would expect the acoustic repertoire in, in captivity to be much more limited than, than the sounds that they produce in the wild. Um, but we don't know much. Uh, there are just a couple of species uh, that were recorded both in captivity and in the wild, like the, the South American river turtle or the Amazon river turtle. I, I don't know um, the popular name you, you prefer, but um, those turtles from the, the Podocnemis genus are, are the better study it so far. And they, they do produce a bunch of different sounds in the wild that they, they seem not to produce in captivity. And also I think the kind of environment uh, should influence, um, in the wild I mean, should influence the sounds that they produce. So like you can find 
several species of turtles are found in different kinds of environments, right? Like uh, the common snapping turtle can be in, in ponds, lakes, rivers, and so on. And uh, I would expect them to slightly change. Like they, they should probably have some amount of flexibility in the way they produce sounds to be more adequate to the uh, environment they, they're living. Mm -hmm. That's a that's another good question. Uh, that we can return back, I think, to the Podoc Nemus in a second. That would be interesting. Uh, but with the snap, like with turtles in general, we talked a lot about that they're producing sounds, but how are they actually doing this? I, it, it, they don't seem like they're really vocally oriented animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I wish I had an answer for your question. Uh, this is something I also investigated during my PhD. Uh, so far, there is one paper published on sound production in turtles, which was published in 2005, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by a group of Italians who, who studied um, different species of uh, testudo, the, the tortoises from, from Europe. And um, like we know that with the scientific community knew that tortoises make sounds for a very long time because they are in land and we can see them and they make very loud sounds when they are breeding. Uh, they, they stretch their neck, they open their mouth and, and they're quite funny and so on. Um, and in their paper, they, they conclude that turtles are only able to produce sounds if they have their, their necks stretched and their, their mouth open and they have to put their tongues out. That's the only way based on, on uh, a lot of different aspects uh, of the soft tissue and, and so on. But at that time, the scientific community didn't know that, that turtles can make underwater sounds. So we thought that only tortoises were vocal. And I think because of that, uh, the conclusions they have are are a bit biased in that sense. They, they only focus on, on that specific uh, group of animals. But um, while recording this many uh, aquatic species, I actually um, observed that they produce a bunch of different types of sounds, but they rarely do with their mouth open. It's like, it's, it's basically all the time with their mouth shut. And they have uh, several movements in their neck. Uh, sometimes they, they move their heads as well. It's a, uh, it's a bit odd. I don't really know what is going on. Um, and of course, it could be that the way sound is produced uh, changed in different lineages of turtles, like it happened uh, in different lineages of um, tetrapods, for example. So um, the birds have um, a special... Um, uh, structure called syrinx that is um, it works in a similar way as our larynx but it's a completely uh, new thing in the evolutionary history and um, I would expect turtles to have not not that extreme uh, example as, as birds but I, I would expect them to have differences as well so I think this is something that should be investigated and during my PhD, I did investigate this a little bit, and uh, I did um, a whole research on the uh, ioid bones of turtles. So the ioid is a bone that is um, part of the axial 
skeleton and it's holding the, the larynx and uh, it also attaches to the tongue and it has a lot of, um, it has an important role in, in feeding, breathing, um, sound production and so on in many species. So I did a, a like a comparative uh, research looking at these uh, bones in, in all turtle lineages. And there are several differences, but I wasn't able to point anything specific that correlates to the, to the uh, sound production in these animals. And I think I would only be able to, to make any inferences uh, if, if I could look at uh, soft tissue or maybe do some, um, I don't know, x-rays, like live x-rays, which is super complicated because they are underwater and, and turtles don't produce sounds that often like birds do. So, so it would be very specific research. Um, and uh, of course I didn't have the time and resources to do that in my PhD. So the answer, like I, I talked for an hour, but the answer is I, I don't know how they produce the sounds. That's, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. It opens up a whole different world of like, how are they actually generating those vocalizations? It's, it's really uh, fascinating. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's sort of fascinating how diverse this topic is. And like, it's a whole area of untouched water or untouched uh, p potential here. And there's so much to ask about it. What, there was another one uh, on the, the sound profiles in the paper that I found kind of interesting. The, the Pelichelis, it looked like they were producing kind of a varied uh, like intensity and it looked different than the others. I don't know if those were also kind of strange or what you think was going on there. I thought those were, yeah, they, they were especially interesting because um, – not specifically because of the sound types. The, there were some other turtles that produced similar similar sounds, but um, and and these didn't have like a huge uh, repertoire. They they were using more or less the same sounds all the time. But the impressive thing about uh, them was that they they would not stop uh, vocalizing. So they um, depending on the species, they they produce sounds like one or two sounds every five to 10 hours. It's like, you have to be very patient to get, to get any sound. Um, but once we put those together and we started recording them, they, they were like birds. They, they wouldn't stop one sound after the other. So I thought, I thought that, that could be a good model for studying uh, turtle vocalization in, in future research, although they are super rare and hard to find. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's real interesting. So, it, so when you had them separate, they they don't really communicate much. But it's only when you bring them together. So it's almost yeah, it seems well, which obvious. which is I think it's a like another evidence that this is used for communication, right? Like they they're not doing it alone. Mm -hmm. um, if it would be just a like a secondary, uh, like a consequence of another behavior, then they they would probably do it all the time, right? I would guess. Right. With, with, um, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, so captivity is another one where it, it's interesting. Like, it, I mean, you were measuring this in captivity, but the, and just thinking about how the repertoires of sound would change 
do you think captivity changes those from what they would be in the wild? Maybe we don't have the answers for this, but I do not have the answer, but I, I, I would guess so at least um, in some degree. Um, but I, I think it would be cool to to use those sounds made in captivity to at least start some, for example, uh, playback experiments in the wild. Um, yeah, and actually, you were asking me about those those soft shells, and um, well, considering that you're in the U.S., um, I wasn't able to record the the American soft shell, the, the spiny spiny soft shell, you call them, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't record them, and uh, based on on the species I I did record, I think soft shells generally produce a bunch of sounds. They're they're quite uh, chatty compared to other lineages. So if I could recommend you to do something in this uh, line of work would be to, to try to record the, the spiny soft shells and maybe, maybe start in captivity and then, and then go to the wild and check. They're, they're quite common, aren't they? Like you can easily find them, I guess, in some so, regions at least. So what species of soft shell have you uh, tested with? Uh, I, I recorded plenty of them. Um, I, I recorded one species of every single genus, except for uh, Raphaetus, which is like nearly impossible to find. Yeah, right. And, and um, the spiny soft shell. That's awesome. I have, yeah, I have recordings of all, all the other ones. Not all species, but, but at least one in each uh, genus. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see how chatty Keetra are. Yeah, no, they are. They are. I'll, I'll tell you. That's awesome. <laughs> going going and, back uh, I was to telling you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so just to, to finish that, I was telling you before that I have another another chapter in my PhD that is also focused on, on turtle acoustics, where I describe um, the acoustic repertoire of um, snapping turtles, common snapping turtles in more detail. In this same paper, I, I also described the, the chitra. Nice. Awesome. So, so yeah, a lot of information about those as well. Yeah. The, um, the, the Apollon, the, the North American soft shells, uh, it, that would make an interesting model system because you could do it in captivity here, but then also like they're not, their ecology would make it, I think, fairly easy to go in the in in situ and do it because they do they kind mm -hmm. of bury in the sandbanks. And if you can find one, it's possible that you could go around it while it's buried and it wouldn't know you were there. But trying to find them in a social situation could be tough. And how, are, how clear is the water? In uh, in certain areas, it can be fairly clear, but it, it, I mean, it just depends what what river system you're in. But they are in. They are in spring systems, uh, but they're also in murky water. Uh, yeah. 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 Do you think yeah, that, that's definitely try with? No, I think that would change as, as well because um, maybe they could communicate visually in some context, but then if, if they're not able to see each other, then they, they would produce other sounds or a bit more. I, I don't know. They, they would change how how the sounds like the, the pitch of the sounds based on the on on the water 
but I was asking about the how clear the water is because then if, if you have clear water, you could just uh, put cameras in there and try playback experiments. So you don't need them to be in a social, necessarily in a social setup all the time. You, you can just experiment on them. Hmm. See if they react to specific sounds and so on. There are places here too, especially in Florida, where uh, like South Florida, you can get a assemblage of turtles in like an urban pond, uh, and they're they're naturally get more abundant there just from people fishing and discarding waste and things that they eat. But yeah. it would be interesting to put a hydrophone in there, and it wouldn't be really informative taxonomically, but just to see how how much is going on in that one area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing. With the um, uh, we'll we'll start to kind of yeah, but with with the the cameras, were you recording what was going on while they were producing the sounds, or was this just for playback of the sound in particular? No, I I haven't done any playback experiments. I did that trying to associate um, behavior to sound. Mm-hmm. So I, I was trying to to see what they were doing. Uh, also, because I wanted to discard the possibility that those those sounds were just byproducts. Okay. Um, so yeah, okay. but it's it's a bit hard because you know the the shells make it hard sometimes. I had two cameras, so like one in each side of the enclosure, trying to trying to get at least some some of it. But sometimes they they stop very close to the camera and in a position where the shell covers the whole head of the turtle. Uh, so it can be tough. I, like I, I have a few videos where you can see the turtle vocalizing, but not many. And considering that I recorded as many species, I would expect to to get better videos. Actually, interesting. Uh, yeah, that, that yeah, that's uh, I, I can imagine sort of a challenge to. I mean, they're they're moving around a lot in the tank. Like how the tanks, I assume you had them in were fairly small, but still, they was it kind of a problem with. Uh, well, it really depends on the species. Like I, I record, a, um, this is not in the in this paper we were talking about here, but also during my PhD, I recorded uh, Barger. And uh, I did recordings in a swimming pool where there were over 25-year-old juveniles. So quite, quite large, a lot of animals in there. And shitty video. <laughs> I think also because like turtles are very good at making the water dirty. And yeah. um, sometimes in, in a couple of hours, it, like you cannot see, like you have complete clear water, but you have to shut down the uh, filtration system because it's noisy. And in, in a couple of hours, it's, it's just impossible to see anything. Right, right. Um, coming back to the Podoc Nemus too, were you seeing, like, did you analyze them again or just use the, uh, the previous recordings? Like, were you finding new, new sounds in them if you did analyze it or was that not something you looked at? Uh, well, in this, in this, uh, article, we didn't include the Podoc Nemus as like, one of the, I mean, we included in the database but not in the list of species we recorded because we didn't. But uh, I'm sorry, I have to specify this. I'm talking about Podocnemis expansa, which is the, the giant uh, South American river turtle. And it's the, the species that is uh, 
quite well studied. Uh, we did include Podocnemis, but it was um, Sex tuberculata. It's a, it's a different species, also quite large. Uh, similar ecology, similar behavior, and they, they make more or less similar sounds. Um, but no, I did not record uh, Podocnemis expansa. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, it makes sense that you would just have uh, the previous recordings and use that. I mean, it, it sounds like the the ones that the new ones that you recorded took up enough time. Um, it, so, sort of, I guess, kind of rounding out this portion of the discussion, um, what kind of what are the next steps for this? And uh, yeah, I guess just yeah, what's next? I'm interested in a bunch of um, different, but also related topics on, on turtle acoustic communication. Uh, so one of the things that I also investigate in, in my PhD and I, I'm about to submit the paper for publication is on um, acoustic communication and um, uh, synchronous behavior of hatchlings. So we know that many turtles produce sounds from within the eggs in a clutch. And it's, we, we are not completely sure, but um, there, there are some suggestions that the, the hatchlings use those sounds to synchronize the hatch and the, and the uh, nest. Um, what is the word? Um, yeah, coming out of nest. Yeah. Um, and, um, and we don't we don't really know. And uh, there were a few uh, um, studies trying to understand this. One of them was published in 2022 as well last year on the common snapping turtle by a, a group from Canada, which is, um, in my opinion, the best research on, on this specific topic. And they try they do playback experiments with the eggs and they try to understand if they are using those sounds to synchronize hatch. They they say they didn't find any any answers they uh, I mean they they do not respond to the sounds that they they were playing to the to the eggs um, but they also suggest that maybe it's more complex than than what they um, expected and and new research should be done and I did record a lot of different clutches from different species to check which ones are producing sounds and and the ones they are not and so on so this is one of the topics, and um, although I, I do have one interesting paper to publish, I think this is still very preliminary, and I, I really think it would be cool to keep going that direction. Um, and another thing I'm interested in doing is to understand a bit more about how complex the, the acoustic repertoire of one species can be. So now I'm going to work... Um, together with Camila Ferrara, this, this person in, in Brazil. Uh, and we're gonna focus uh, my next research. My, um, I recently got news that I have a, a, a being granted a, a postdoc position. Um, so I'm gonna do this, this research on the um, uh, South American river turtle, Podocnemis expansa in the Amazon with Camila. And we're gonna basically study different populations and see if they, they are producing different sounds 
uh, they have different languages, things like this. And there are many smaller projects inside that one, but I guess we can talk about this in a couple of years when it's, when it's published. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cool. And, and I can I mean, that, that's an interesting topic in itself. Like you, you, I think you've got some experience sort of in the genetic realm of, of work and I, I could, I like something like that. You could easily link to, even figuring out kind of the GWAS kind of thing and figuring out genes that are working on and how the evolution at the genetic level is producing different sounds. And like, I don't know if that's something you have planned, but that just comes to mind initially for me. No, oh, yeah, that's, you're in the right path, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, so the last sort of thing in this area too would be uh, it, we've sort of discussed how wide open not wide open, but how, how novel this whole area is. And it's not like, it, it's almost sort of um, misleading to think that the only question that exists here is are turtles producing sound and communication, but it's so much more of a complicated, I mean, there's so many different opportunities for research here uh, that, that uh, I think a lot of people, this could be a whole new sort of field. Uh, and I think that's kind of what, Right. Yeah, so, no, I, I, I agree 100%. Uh, there's yeah. so much to, to learn. And, so that, and that I think it could be... Sorry, you go, go ahead. No, no, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I just think that um, many, many different fields of research can profit from, from turtles as models in bioacoustics. Uh, we can learn about ecology, uh, conservation, evolution, uh, there, there's so much to do. Um, and nowadays, if you, if you check on other groups of animals like birds and mammals, they are uh, much better studied that uh, we have developed as a like, um, scientific community, a lot of different uh, new techniques and technologies that can be used. Um, and they are, they are available already. And this is a new, um, new role for us because we didn't know the turtles make sounds or the, that many sounds at least. So now we can use all those things that are available and just discover a bunch more about these animals. Um, and for example, uh, there are so many turtles that are, are highly endangered. Um, we cannot, like every once in a while, someone says, oh, I found this species that has been missing for this many years. We only knew of two that are in captivity, but we found another one and so on. And there are new methods that are on bioacoustics that we could use to, for example, trace these animals. So um, we could use, um, there's, a, there's a new type of recorder that is quite cheap, actually. You can, you can buy, it's, uh, it's a, like a bulk buy. You, you buy many of them when they produce them. Uh, it's called... Audio Moth. I don't know if you ever heard of it. And now they have a version uh, for underwater recording. Uh, the quality is not that high, but if you already know the repertoire of the species, you can just set up in the wild and it, it keeps recording for months. And you can, uh, you can associate it to uh, some sort of uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning uh, to identify those sounds of interest and, and give you an alarm, like the, there is this animal here. You know, the, the, we, we have positive 
confirmation of, of the presence of the animal. And then you can, you can, you know, you can do that for endangered species. You can do that for common species. You can do that for, for example, when you said that you want to record that place where they feed the turtles and there are many species there, you could use this to, to actually get to know what are the species that are there without, without having to catch them or anything. But of course, to do that, we need to compile a lot of information about their acoustic repertoire. We need a lot of sounds, a lot of sounds. So I, I think it's not only important that people do research on, on turtle bioacoustics, but also that they make the sounds that they record available to the, com the scientific community. Otherwise, like we are not going to improve our knowledge that, that quickly. So we should collaborate on this. It's almost like uh, it could be useful to create some kind of like universal database for this where people can easily upload their recordings. There are many available. It's just that no one record turtles, so you, you don't get that information. <laughs> right. That's uh, the, the whole artificial intelligence sort of like that, that's something that's been interesting to me is uh, implementing that. I That I could see definitely helping with this. It's almost like uh, – it's like e-acoustics, like e-DNA, but sort of a e-acoustics approach exactly. to things. <laughs> yeah, and it's also that. much cheaper, right? Like you, you don't need to to have the whole whole equipment and sequence the the DNA in the water and so on. It's it's easier. Yeah, right. Well, and and sort of uh, one follow up to that would be for someone that's interested in this, like what do you think are some fruitful areas or research questions that, that need to get tackled in this area? Well, at this stage, I think we just need to know the sounds that they make at first. Like we, we have to record them as much as we can. So I think would be, especially if you're in the, in the beginning of your uh, academic career or you're just interested in these animals and you, you don't know, don't have a goal to, to publish high impact all the time because this is something annoying about academia as well. I, I would suggest people to just try to describe a, a repertoire of one species. So like get as many individuals as you can, put them in different situations, in different combinations, record them and describe the repertoire. Make this um, data set available. And we should do that for many species and then we can start making new questions. But there are also other questions that I think would be more or less easy to, to answer with, I don't know, a couple of species. Like for example, we could um, choose one, um, one lineage like um, mud turtles or map turtles and then record um, five different species, describe the repertoire of those five species and then uh, try to see if there is a way to tell them apart and if there is some sort of uh, character in the sound that is diagnostic and if that, if that is uh, linked to the evolutionary tree of life of that lineage, for example. So then you can tell, oh, okay, this, this has an evolutionary trace or not. Then you can go to ecology. So you can do research like uh, record we were saying before, record the same species in different areas where it exists. So ponds, lakes, rivers, see if the, if the vocal behavior changes in those places. Um, yeah. 
I guess <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah, it's, uh, have it's, you uh, noticed? Um, sorry, I'll, Michael, what do you want to say? Yeah, go go ahead, Kat. No, uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you noticed anything? Um, like with, with regards to like the the vigor or health of a population and the degree and or frequency of their vocalizations. That that's a good question. I'm, I actually don't know if I if I saw uh, like a an actual pattern there, but uh. I was interested in that, and I, I would expect, I think it's like common sense to think that the, the bigger the number of, of animals, uh, the bigger the number of vocalizations you're going to get. Uh, but there were several situations where I had a bunch of animals together and very, very few sounds. But when I have only two, then they are communicating all the time. And one pattern that, in this case, this is, this is clear to me, is that they do communicate more if they are in touch for the first time. So like if you go, like I told you about the Badger uh, swimming pool, those animals were together since they were hatchlings. And I recorded the pool for many hours and they didn't produce many sounds. But once I put the, the adults together, the adults were like one male, one female, and they were in separate pools. They, they know each other, but they only meet every once in a while for breeding. When I put them together, they started immediately to, to produce several different sounds. Mm-hmm. And, and that happens in many species like um, rat food tortoises, for example, I have seen them uh, meeting for the first time and they make those movements with their heads like this and they make some very funny sounds that sound a bit like, um, like a chicken, I guess. <laughs> um, and they don't do that after they, they've been together for long. So yeah, I guess I guess there's a lot of meaning to, to that. There's a social component. Yeah, I think it's really understated how social turtles can be. I mean, mm-hmm. like a lot of people really under, underestimate how um, they have. I was talking to Michael about this like right before we started recording. Um, just about like how many like especially in map turtles and terrapins there are just so many little quirky social interactions that they have with each other and um uh, i don't know really how to phrase it um it was interesting what you were saying too about kind of the maternal like you see the yeah a lot of them, yeah um, I, I've noticed with so I live in Delaware, which is a state that has a really high uh, density of northern diamondback terrapins, and I've noticed uh, mainly here uh, that they tend to have more of a matriarchal structure. Uh, whereas I'll go out and I will be, uh, you know, taking my pictures or just observing the terrapins. I'll notice that the females will often have several males uh, following her around at once, and it's just all the time. So wherever I find a female, you're guaranteed to find two or three males following behind them. Mm-hmm. And it was the same with um, northern map turtles when I went up to New Jersey last year. Uh, they tend to follow the northern map turtles around as well. Not to as great of an extent, but um, still. Yeah, no, no, those are those are very cool observations. I think this is what it's all about. Yeah, you have to to try to find patterns and and describe that to to everyone. I don't know. Yeah. Do, do you guys have? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, I was just saying this whole episode has kind of made me wonder. Uh, 
what secret vocalizations might be taking place now between the Diamondback Terrapins and the little groups of them. And that may be something I would be uh, interested in checking out with the audio moth that you've previously mentioned. Dude, you should definitely do that. No one ever recorded that species. Um, do you guys have any pet turtles? Yeah, I have a red foot and a red-eared slider. Um, so no, like you don't have um, like a small population in, in one oh. tank or, or anything like that. Yeah, so, so maybe you're not able to observe that. But I have seen in many cases, many different species of turtles, they, they, would, they would stop one in front of each other and they would like, like if they are measuring each other, and and they're they're you know they stop and they're they're looks looking in each other's eyes and sometimes they they have a like a throat uh throat movement and you hear nothing because they are underwater and uh, i mean there's a glass uh in in between you and the turtles but uh, i'm pretty sure that they are vocalizing at that at exactly that moment and i was i was already thinking that when i started my research and after I, I did a lot of recordings with the cameras in, in the tanks, I saw that happening, uh, like that happened many times, many times. So um, I'm sure that, um, I mean, this is a bit of a stretch, but I'm, I'm sure that the, the, the turtles you, you have and the turtles that you're interested in studying are, are making sounds as well. Just go there and, and try. It's, uh, it's something too like hybrid turtles. Kind of curious, like how, how does it change if you've got hybrids, that sort of thing? And... That's a very good question. And domestic ones as well. I, I mean, the, the term domestic is a bit broad and, uh, and it's sometimes hard to define. But the, like, especially in the US, there are so many um, turtles uh, that you can get access to, like you can buy in shops. There are like morphs and I don't know what else you, you, you can find there. But um, uh, those, I, I would classify them as more or less uh, domesticated. And uh, I, I wonder if they would produce different sounds from the ones in the wild as well. That would right, be something right. cool to check. Yeah, no, that would be. I, I think sort of uh, we can sort of transition into something, uh, just a, something else that you looked at. Um, which is sort of this this was interesting i i didn't realize this until going back through some of your work uh but you've also done work with sort of the evolution of um productive parameters in terms of egg size and and optimal egg size theory that sort of thing um and and so you use some interesting methodologies there but i, I just uh I'm, I, one thing that really stood out to me in that in that paper that you read was you used this method to look at sort of convergence of uh, different sort of reproductive uh, associations over time uh, in kind of mm -hmm. a phylogenetic framework. Uh, maybe you could just talk about that a little bit because I, I think we, we take it for granted, right? So, yeah, if you could just expand yeah. on that. So, uh, basically, to put it in simple words, um, there is a tendency for turtles that lay a bunch of eggs, so large clutches, to have uh, proportionally smaller eggs that are much rounder. And the species that, that lay one to four eggs, for example, they tend to, to be 
uh, very elongated and much uh, larger in comparison to, to the uh, body size of the turtle. And this is a pattern you can see in many different lineages. Actually, the, um, you can see both of those patterns in, within all turtle lineages, basically. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, and there is this theory that is called the optimum egg size theory that implies that um, there is a specific size of egg in correlation to the clutch and the body size of the animal that is um, optimal to that species. And basically we tested that um, looking at, not, not that this has never been tested before, but only in specific lineages of turtles and also other, other groups of animals like birds. Uh, and what we did is that we compiled information for every, not every species of turtle, but <laughs> most of them. Uh, we have um, uh, data for every genus. Um, and we checked this in a, in a broad uh, phylogenetic perspective of turtles. And, and yeah, we just confirmed the, the, what the, the um, theory says. Um, and the methods that we use in this paper are, uh, I mean, you have to, you have to try to have a, like a, a statistical approach sometimes and, and try to explain things in number. I think many, many of the journals like that as well. Um, but in a way, I think that what we show with this statistical um, approach is, is basically just a confirmation of what we can observe when we, like, we, we have the tree and we plot the information in the tree. And you see that those things change within lineages. So you can already infer that, that this is a, a convergent uh, trait in turtles. Um, and different lineages will go to different directions, but it's, it's, really, it's really random, I think. Um, there's no like a, a pattern of, of like what made the different, different groups of turtles go to different directions in, in the reproductive, um, let's say framework. Yeah. But there are some, some uh, characteristics in, in, the, in the places where they live, for example. So like uh, tropical turtles uh, tend to produce uh, more eggs, things like this. Um, we, and we try to explain those, those patterns with a, a bit of a eco uh, turtle ecology, but you know, it's a lot of inferences, I guess. But the, the cool thing about this paper is that we, we can actually show how, how these characteristics are, are distributed among all turtles. Right, and it, with the, uh, the, the convergence in that, like the, the analysis you did where you looked at how different types, I think you split, split up into like six different groups. So Pleuridires and Cryptodires each had three different uh, kind of associations in terms of clutch size. And then you, you use some analytical methods to figure out over time how those things have converged. Do you think that there's, can, can you use that to predict how contemporary distributions of those clutch size patterns will change with time? Or is that more something that you're just tracing it back through time that you see that it's come to this point now and that it, it, it's changed in a certain way? Well, that, that's a good question, but I think in the end, it's a philosophical question more than anything. Um, 
I think different people would probably say different things to the question. My opinion is that this is a solid no. Um, and I, my point of view is that like the, every, every evolutionary change that happened throughout the, the history of those lineages um, can be considered like a, a historical event. So basically every single time that something happened, it happened because of uh, specific contexts and therefore they're not necessarily comparable. So although now that we have a, like a, a broad view of things and, and like we have a lot of information in the long term for different lineages, we could run a statistical analysis in, in, in a broad sense and, and then try to inform future patterns. Philosophically, I think this is a mistake because in the future, the context will be different from the context of the past and therefore Although some things might look the same, they are not the same. So it's it's really possible in that sense to predict the future. That's how I see it, at least. Yeah, I don't know if I, makes if I make myself clear here. I mean, it, it, the sort of the driver of, of sort of how natural selection works and how those changes happen is the environment and, and trying to predict what the environment's going to be like is hard. I, and and I, think, I think that sort of encapsulates the point. It's like we can't know. Is that sort yeah. of accurate? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's more or less what I think, yeah. Okay. A lot of people do yeah. this kind of research stuff. Um, a lot of people would disagree with me. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the modeling aspect. I've I, with some of the pond turtle stuff I was doing. We're now trying to do these. Uh, they're models based on the data that we collected, but it's uh, there's some like level of predictive capacity. We're trying to like how how are the I've looked at Reddit slider and Western pond turtle interactions and basking dynamics, and we're trying to figure out is there some way we can extrapolate out in like 50 years how the distributions are going to change, and it's just mm -hmm. that sort of thing becomes challenging. Uh, it's so theoretical mm -hmm. that it's almost like how well does it really match reality? But that's sort of a, a, a something else and and uh, future discussion, I guess. Uh, but sort of to wrap things up here. Um, uh, for someone uh, that's looking to get into in, in, in trying to make turtle and tortoise work a career, what's some advice that you would have? And maybe for someone that's currently in, in, in grad school or, or uh, trying to get a degree, what's some advice you would have? Uh, I think the most important thing is to be passionate. You know, like um, it is hard, it is competitive, but um, you're going to thrive if you're, if you're really passionate about this, it's just, it comes naturally, I guess. You're going to find other people who are also in love about the topic and they're going to, they're going to support you. They're going to help you out. And um, you're just going to keep going because you, you really want to learn. You really want to know. Um, I think this, um, you know, the, the wish to, discover is a very powerful thing and um if you're not that interested maybe you should look for something else <laughs> and and have it as a, a hobby uh but yeah if you're passionate i'm sure i'm sure it's gonna work out 
And of course, try, try to contact different people. Try to, you know, get out of your bubble. Talk to people elsewhere. Talk to people in other countries. Um, go, go in the wild. See the animals. Observe things. Read a lot. Read a lot. That's good. That's, uh, yeah, we'll certainly take that advice to heart and for listeners. That's really good. That's, that's really good advice. I like that. <laughs> good. <laughs> And, and it, it's good. I, like, I think you can't really teach passion. It seems like something that for people that I'm around and have been around, it's like a lot of people try to teach their kids passion and instill that, but it's something that just has to come naturally. It's, it's a complicated thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I mean, I think that's sort of, uh, unless there's anything else you want to add, uh, Gabriel, we can uh, sort of wrap things up, but. Um, well, I don't know, maybe you could, uh, I don't know if this is possible, maybe you could uh, make my email available. So if someone is interested in, in doing this kind of research, I just want to help out as much as I can and give tips and, I don't know, just support people. Um, I, I really wish more people start doing this kind of research. So I'm here to help however I can. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we can definitely do that. We will link the paper and, and also the recordings as well. I'll do that uh, once this airs in a bit. Uh, but we also, so at the end, I, I forgot to mention this, uh, but we like to do like a little turtle trivia round just for fun. And to just, if you've got any like obscure turtle facts, uh, just to sort of throw them around with each other. So we can do this anyway. We can ask you questions. You can ask us questions. Uh, normally I like to tell people in advance so they can come up with something, but I, I, it just slipped my mind this time. Uh, but I don't know if you've got some random turtle facts that you want to throw at us or we can throw some at you. Uh, just it's sort of a fun way to, did <laughs> you know, did you know that, um, I struggle a bit with popular names. Um, I think it's the Chinese big head turtle. Mm -hmm. Do you know which one? Body sternon megacephalum. Exactly, that's right. Um, did you know that those um, are known to be... Actually, this was the first turtle, uh, I mean, water turtle, to be um, described as being vocal by a very ancient Chinese book that is considered like a very important cultural thing in China. I'll, I won't be able to tell you the name of the book now, though. Um, and this species is also known to climb trees. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that. They're really good climbers. They also have that yeah. really cool prehensile tail. Yeah, that's an insane animal. Insane. But I, I have seen photos of other uh, turtle species climbing trees as well. There, there's one from, uh, I, don't, I don't remember the species, but it was one, some sort of mud turtle in the U.S., holding a, a, a tree and like a meter up. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, Kinosternids, they will climb trees to bask. I yeah. had many musk turtles fall out of trees and surprise me while herping. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I've had similar experience with, um, I, I was working in Belize last summer at, uh, the, the be free station out there. Um, and we we were doing it's actually we weren't there for the dermatomies, which is kind of funny because most people go for that. Uh, we were there to 
sort of look at the assemblage of all the seven or eight other species that are there. Um, <laughs> and we had white lip mud turtles. That's the most common one that we encounter there. Uh, and one of them, we, we worked in sort of this, uh, it's like a hut. And there, it was double screened, so there was an out, outer screen and an inner screen. And one of the white lip mud turtles we had, uh, in the process of taking it back and waiting to process it, this thing escaped and made it about 10 feet to the screen and then ascended about five feet into the screen. So it wasn't like it was, it, it was sandwiched between two layers of mesh. So it was easy enough for it to get up with kind of the force of the, the two different uh, screens on it. But it was still crazy because we were looking for this thing for like an hour. And finally, <laughs> someone, else, someone else comes from the group and within 30 seconds, he found it. And the reason we couldn't see it is because it was sort of behind a shirt. They had like the merchandise in there. And so it had wedged its way five feet up behind a shirt and he had flipped the shirt and saw this thing there. And it was just, it was wild to see that. But yeah, they climb, you know. <laughs> yeah. I have seen many videos of uh, common snapping turtles climbing fences as well. They, they are wild. Yeah, that's, uh, those ones too. And the, uh, the intermediate musk turtles is the recently described musk turtle. They'll be like, I've got some videos uh, I'm going to put out on uh, like social media soon of them. I mean, they're, they're like 10 feet up in the tree. And, and like you were, we were talking about beforehand, they're basking and it's not sunny out. It's, it's shaded. A lot of these places are like 10 feet up on branches and it's not, it's, it's fairly cold actually. So I don't know. There's got to mm -hmm. be some more significance to that. But maybe they are trying to avoid the warm water. This is this is why turtles bask at night, based on this new paper that came out. I was telling you about before from from Don. So yeah, they are. They're inversely yeah. uh, basking. I think. <laughs> yeah, um, right. It's a different term. <laughs> I saw a video this morning. I just pulled it up now on my phone just to make sure. Um, and it appears to be a a common snapping turtle climbing up a telephone pole, and it's like really up towards the top. It's insane. I know. I I don't know how they end up doing that. It's it, they're really surprising climbers for how it's built. I have seen uh, what while doing my recordings, I have seen um, a common snapping turtle that was put in a in a like you know those um, like container boxes, like the the black one that is very thick and like very strong plastic. Yeah, it was put inside of one of those, and it, it simply broke the plastic in half and came through the box wow. out of it. It's insane. It's, this, is, this is a powerful animal. Well, they have insanely powerful forearms. Um, I mean, there was one time Jack and I were working uh, with, a, uh, I think it was 19 inches in width, 18 inches in carapace length uh, snapping turtle that we caught up in northern Delaware. And it had actually, in its... Um, attempts to snap at us it had pierced the webbing of its own uh front forelimbs with its back uh claws super super strong animals yeah and i mean just like the feeding videos i've seen either natural predation uh with larger mammals like beavers and canada i've seen snapping turtles it's insane how strong they are to be able to do an animal like a beaver yeah yeah i've seen some videos as well it's cool cool animal 
All right. Well, I think we can sort of wrap things up here. But uh, Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on today and telling us more about your work. Um, it's been it's been awesome. Uh, and I have, and I have two given... questions before we go. Whoa. Okay. All <laughs> I have right. Two questions. <laughs> All right, yeah. so, first, you, you mentioned the um, you mentioned the scientific utility of you know establishing like a public database of of all these turtle sounds, right? Uh, I'm yeah. wondering if you think there's also potential for abuse because you know supposedly you know if they you know you can correct me if i'm thinking about this wrong but you know if like a commercial trapper were to find you know the audio file for a turtle that's saying like you know let's smash you know they could play that audio file in the water and then get all the turtles to come up their traps or something like that yeah. well i guess you can use things in the bad way um in every situation right like i, I don't know but I don't know if that would work. Um, the, mm -hmm. Then you were inferring that they will respond to playback, uh, which I don't oh, know yeah. if it's the case. I don't know if it's the case. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, we should definitely try. Yeah. Be before you go, you know, is there is it possible for you to play like just a sound recording of a of a turtle sound? Uh, I cannot do that through my phone. Um, I, I, but... I so. The um, I can access the supplementary material. You said that it was in there. I can send you a link that makes it easier. Sure. Yeah. Uh, if you want. Yeah. If you want to do that, because we could pull one up right now, and and if you've got a whole group of them, we could play some. Shit. But uh, yeah, just send that to me. We can get that up. But uh, I I just gotta say, like, the, the we have like some we the the dynamic the social dynamics a bit weird because we're online, but. Ken, uh, he doesn't talk much, but he's always got these good questions. He's got to talk a little bit more over here. He's, he's thinking more. That's what it is. Yeah. No. He's, <laughs> yeah. That was that. That is really interesting. That whole aspect, like how? Yeah. How could it be abused, right? <laughs> oh yeah, no, but for sure, that's that's something to think about. I guess you're right. Mm -hmm. We, we are trying to make conservation and, and sometimes we can make things worse, right? It should, should be careful. So, All right. Sounds cool. Sweet. Thank you for having me. It was, it was pretty cool talk. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, yeah, that was awesome. All right. Um, guess I'll see you around. Are you going to the TSA meeting this year? The, the symposium? Uh, I will be there. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I don't know about the other guys. I'm yeah. still on the fence. All right. Okay. I'll I'll make sure Ken comes. I'm pretty sure I can get. Uh... <laughs> I, I am actually I'm actually not coming this year, uh, but I plan on on going next year. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, we'll 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 yeah, we'll cross paths down the line for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, It'd be fun to talk right. once uh, you started that podoc podoc nemus work and and yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully I have something to show. Okay, yeah. <laughs> all right, sweet. Thanks, Cheers, Gabriel. guys. And this has been uh, episode thirty-seven. See ya. We'll see you later. Thank <laughs> you.